Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Miami Open round of 16 starts today. It is Tuesday because I've had to uh, re-record the show. I uploaded yesterday. It was up for about an hour, but uh, I just wasn't happy with it. Quite simply, there's a multitude of reasons, and uh, I want to give you a product that I'm proud of and that I think that you'll enjoy. So I want to start over, and I'm kind of changing things up. Similar to what I always do traditionally on the first Monday of majors, just do a full about 30 minutes, I believe, uh, of comment response. And it's, you know, it's a similar situation because you're starting the round of 16. We're kind of mid-tournament here. Uh, so I, I, um, I have a, a bunch of good comments from you guys um, that I want to just get to. I wasn't, that was one of the things I wasn't happy with, with, uh, yesterday's show that I recorded was I did not get to the comments that I wanted to get to. Uh, and also a lot of the stuff was not evergreen, you know, in terms of the, the content that it was kind of stale immediately because more matches were, were played. And, uh, I just want to avoid that. So let's start with, uh, Twitter. Uh, Nomo Perea said, could you talk about Shea Suwei? So uh, women's tennis request, I will, I will answer as, as best I can. Um, she is someone who kind of reminds me of Aggie Radvanska. Um, and she beat Osaka this week, and then she beat Wozniacki this week. So she's, she's on a run right now. Uh, doesn't hit with, doesn't really generate any racket speed at all. What she's really good at is putting the ball exactly where she wants because she keeps her swing, swing so short, almost like she she's bunting the ball, which is a baseball reference. But, you know, she's able to, to change direction seamlessly. She's able to put the ball exactly where she wants, even if that means kind of short in the court, short angles in the court. She's a great mover. She absorbs pace really well. And uh, she can finish at the net. She she hits two-handed on both sides. Sometimes she changes to one. Uh, very, very flat hitting. One thing she's able to do that's interesting is she's able to draw her opponents to net. And especially in the women's game, uh, a lot of the women are uncomfortable at the net. So that's something that I think that she takes advantage of. I think Radvanska took advantage of it that can be taken advantage of in women's tennis. It can also be taking taken advantage much more in men's tennis because you see more net play on the men's side, but also a declining level of net play on the men's side. So 
there should be more players who are able to draw take opportunities to draw their opponents to net and take advantage of how uncomfortable a lot of players are at the net. So uh, Shea Sue is really interesting to watch, eclectic game, and do, does a lot of things does a lot of things really well. Um, I think yeah, I think she's. I don't know if she's at the level or if she'll get to the level of Aggie Radvanska, who's one of the best players not to win a major in the history of women's tennis. I believe. I I, I think that's true. Um, but I see a lot of similarities in the way they don't have a conventional. They don't have a conventional game in the respect that they don't accept. They don't accelerate on their ground strokes. Really, they cannot generate pace. They do not have big serves. But they're able to still find ways to win points, and it's fun to watch. All right, that's enough. I, that's that's all I got from uh, from Twitter. You can at me anytime. At Gil Gross is my handle. Uh, Marcos Ferranegato says Felix and Hercoc is a match worth looking out. This match I didn't see, and then they didn't put the replay on on tennis TV. But I did see the highlights about five minutes. It's hard to dissertain uh, a lot from highlights, but. What, what you can see is that Felix continues to display combinations of athleticism and shot making that are incredibly, incredibly rare. And when we do see them, they are generally occurring at the elite, elite level of the sport. Uh, he's playing an, an ultra-aggressive game, but still showcasing incredible defense when he needs it. And there's just not a lot of things to pick apart with Felix's game. I've talked about that. And, and I think I, there's more comments coming about FAA later. Uh, for Hercotch, uh, he's the, the what's interesting is the only thing that's really standing out to me about Hercotch are his results. He's good at a lot of things. He's got a good serve. He moves well for his size. He's even off of both wings. Um but I'm still, I'm still, I think, figuring him out. I think it's taking a little bit longer f for me to figure out Hercotch because his game is not incredibly distinctive, and it's really good. So I'm not, I'm not trying to bash him at all. But it's not incredibly I instinctive in the sense that it doesn't jump out right away. And I've seen a lot of Andy Murray comparisons. I don't know where people are getting that from. I think like Matthew Willis was the first person I saw make that comparison. Then I've seen like two, you know, two, three other people make the comparison. I don't know if it was just because they saw him do it. I don't see that at all. But uh, Hercotch, I'm still figuring out. But, but Felix right now is, in my opinion, embarking on what will be a meteoric rise. And we'll get more, again, we'll get more to him a little bit later. Going on, moving on to the next comment. And, uh, Elwin Diggo um, says, uh, of course you're analyzing that one. I bet you enjoyed. He was amazing. Um, and then he said, I think Albot was close. If you watched that one, can you share some thoughts about him? Sure. Uh, so the first part of that comment was referring to David Ferrer and Sasha Zverev. So I'll comment a bit on that match. Uh, this... You know, I have a lot to say. There was there was a stark contrast in the mentality between Ferrer and Zverev, where Zverev was not fighting as hard when he was in when he was struggling in this match, 
anyone can fight when things are going well, when they're feeling good about themselves. But Zverev was hitting a lot of double faults, he was making an uncharacteristic number of unforced errors, and when he was in these ruts, when he was in those spells, instead of using the the possibly frustrate, I'll call it a frustrated energy, in a positive sense, in a positive way, like Ferrer does. When Ferrer misses, he, he's angry about it, and he fights harder the next point. He, he uses that anger and directs it at the fight, at his, at his warrior spirit. That's where he directs his anger. Zverev gets dejected. Zverev shrugs his shoulders. Zverev gets um, discouraged when he's going through bad moments in the match. So I want to point out that mental contrast. Second thing I want to point out is uh, Ferrer controlling the match with his forehand, putting Zverev on the defensive for the vast majority of the neutral baseline rallies. Or I shouldn't even call them neutral because Ferrer was, was really getting ahead in these baseline rallies. Zverev not an exceptional defender. He plays with the tactics, Sasha Zverev, of Andy Murray. And I, I, I know I just mentioned Murray, but I'm going to mention him again. Zverev's tactics, he plays like he's Murray. He's not as fast as Murray. He's not as defensively talented as Murray. Why is he playing as passive as Andy Murray? Why is he... And, and it's not to say that Zverev will never step into the court and, and be aggressive, just like it's not to say Murray would never do that. But the way... Zverev is retreating behind the baseline and playing a retrieval style and a trading style and a style predicated around shot tolerance, a style predicated around not being the first one to miss. He does not have the skill sets to employ these tactics. He is, he is playing too passively. And Ferrer was on top of the baseline, slugging away with his forehand. His footwork is so good, David Ferrer. He is so quick that he gets behind the forehand with so much time to, to spare. Short backswing, loads up his legs, loads up his hips. Five foot nine, uh, very strong in the legs, very strong in the upper body. Puts everything into his forehand when it comes to his biomechanics. Am I using the right word? Biomechanics? I don't know if I'm I don't know if that's the right word, but when it comes to his technique, he's able to throw his body into his forehand, put everything he has into it, and that's why at five foot nine, his forehand is an ultra weapon. And I think that's important to point out because a lot of people uh, say that Ferrer is a weaponless player. His forehand, if you don't see that his forehand is a weapon, then you're missing something about David Ferrer. Why was his forehand able to take control of the match, though? Uh, it's very simple, and I do have a visual to show this. Um, it's, it, it was Zverev's, again, Zverev's tactics and Zverev's court position. So Ferrer takes, hits a backhand down the line here, and Zverev is about eight feet behind the baseline, and he's hitting a forehand on the run. He hits it short, and Ferrer steps into the court and rips another forehand directed 
to the deuce side at Zverev's forehand. And once again, Zverev, ranging to his right, hits another running forehand. And you'd think after dropping the last one short, maybe he would make the adjustment. When you're trying to hit the same shot two times in a row, oftentimes you'll hit it better the second time because whatever you did wrong the first time, you'll make that adjustment. But Zverev here has a problem because he simply can't. And right now, probably another two feet behind the baseline, maybe 10 feet behind the baseline at this point because he got pushed back from the Ferrer forehand. He hits another short ball inside the service box. No pace, no depth, weak, loopy. Ferrer steps in and rips a forehand down the line. Um, Zverev got a racket on this. It wasn't an outright winner, but the ball bounced before it even hit the other side of the net. So, I'm going to go back here. I'm going to talk about the position that Zverev's putting himself in, playing so far behind the baseline. Some players can do it, and it's not a problem. We talk about these players a lot uh, when, I, when I talk about Vavrinka or Dominic Thiem or Rafa Nadal, who have the upper body strength and the heaviness of shot. You know, Gael Monfils as well can do it. And uh, in the case of Novak Djokovic, he, he has an incredible way of playing with depth. When he gets pushed behind the baseline and has to play defense, he, he has an incredible ability to put it a foot within the baseline on the other side of the court. So different players, it's not necessarily heaviness with Djokovic, but it's another kind of, it, it's another way that Djokovic is able to remain unattackable while playing far behind the baseline. Not every player has that. A player like Roger Federer doesn't really have it, so what does he do? He never lets himself get there. He stays on the baseline. A player like David Gaffan, he would never let himself really get there. David Ferrer, unless he's on the unless he's really on the defensive and just trying to hang into a point, would never let himself get ten feet behind the baseline in a neutral baseline rally. Five to ten feet behind the baseline. Ferrer, Ferrer wouldn't let himself get all the way back there because he knows he can't. Why can't those players? Because they're not, they don't have the physicality to do it. They have other things. They have the racket talent to take the ball on the rise. They have the timing to take the ball on the rise. They have the foot speed, the quickness to get behind the ball without playing far behind the baseline. And also, it's very important, they have the technique, um, short enough uh, technique, where they don't need as much time to set up their shots. Any player who plays on the baseline has these attributes. Anyone who does so effectively, at least. But Sasha Zverev likes to play way back behind the baseline, and he's physically too weak to do it. His forehand isn't heavy. It's not, it, it's just not heavy at all. And generally, it's dropping short. So right now, Zverev is flat out very beatable. He's not playing good tennis at all. A lot of people jump to conclusions when Zverev isn't playing well. They jump to conclusions about his career. Well, Zverev's playing terrible, so he must be a terrible player, and he'll be a disappointment for the rest of his career. All of these things are unfair when you look at what Sasha Zverev's accomplished. All of these things are unfair. No one under the age of 25 
has accomplished what Zverev has accomplished. No one has won as many Masters 1000s titles. No one has won as big a title as he has in the ATP final. But right now, in 2019, Sasha Zverev is extremely beatable and borderline, I would, I would say with confidence, not playing at a top 10 level. And before I, I move on to the next comment, um, it was totally amazing to see Ferrer play this well, and he's really been playing great all year. I think it's because he sees the finish line now, and he's making that final push physically. What happened with Ferrer is, in order for him to be successful, he had to be really the fittest player on tour. And he took measures that were that are very difficult to take in order to be the physical, the most physical player on tour, or the, the fittest player on tour. One of those measures, for an exa for example, is Ferrer used to go on runs after his matches. So he used to play a five-set match and then go on a run afterwards. I mean, hello, most players. It, it's all recovery. It's all rest. But Ferrer and his coaches would, would run with him around the grounds after his matches because he knew that he needed to be able to go that extra mile when it comes to fitness. But that's hard on the body. And that takes a, a propensity for suffering that David Ferrer possesses. And he could do it for a lot of years, but eventually he couldn't do it anymore. His body couldn't take it anymore, he, and, and he couldn't continue to, to put his body through what it required um, him to, you know, in order to play good tennis. What he was required to do was too much for him. I think now that he sees the finish line, he, he's been able to push himself once again. And his last uh, tournament will be Barcelona, but it's just images like these, the thumbnail, uh, for today's Monday match analysis. It's just so, so great to see him have these moments again. Whoops. There we are. Oh my god. I'm having terrible technical difficulties here. I'm just trying to show you guys the thumbnail. There it is. David Ferrer, arms outstretched. Um, and, you know, it's just great to see a, a sm him having these triumphant moments at the tail end of his career. God knows I'll miss him. Um, okay. Here we go. Next comment. Oh, Albot, actually. I didn't respond about Albot. Albot, uh, he's got, he's got really good, he's got really good ball striking. He has no serve whatsoever and, and isn't, isn't really fast enough or strong enough to ever be a top player. So, so I don't think he'll ever be a top 25 player. Or, I mean, maybe he will be for, for short spurts, but I don't think with any consistency. But he's going to make a lot of money in his career, and the reason he's going to make a lot of money in, it, in his career is because he's going to be a guy who will be a mainstay in, in Grand Slam main draws for a while. And the reason for that is because of how precise he is with his ground strokes. He's kind of like Philip Kohlschreiber, and he's a little bit on a lower level than Kohlschreiber, but he 
he hits a he hits a very consistent precise ground strokes in the sense that uh where he lacks in heaviness he makes up for in his ability to use angle and width and depth and uh does so with with fa a fair bit of consistency i would almost here's here's how i see it gafan on the top level then cole schreiber then albot all three of those players not great servers we're not blessed with great genetics physically. We're blessed with great genetics um, when it comes to coordination and ball striking. And it's not just genetics, I know. But you know what I mean. Great great racket talent. Um, but there are just varying degrees that those three are able to, to execute. All right. Morad... Um, Ben Hamush, he says, Hi Gil, what do you think about FAA progress? Uh, do you think he will reach the top 10 before the end of the season? I kind of do. I, I do think FAA will reach uh, the top 10 because I think he's the next, I think, you know, I think he's the next great. I, I've gotten excited about young players in the past and, and I, I know that. I'm, I'm human. I don't know if I've been like really wrong on anyone, you know. It's not like I, uh, you know, declared Hyun Chung the next, you know, multi Grand Slam winner or anything like that. I, I never, I don't think I, I was really any wrong on any of these guys. But I've gotten excited about almost all of them. FAA, I think, is the first guy where I will say I am wrong. I will, I will say I'm, I'll be wrong. If he does not win multiple Grand Slams. And for Tsitsipas, I've said I think he'll definitely be a Grand Slam champion at some point in his career. I'm willing to go that far. And um, who else have I said that for? I don't know who else. Um, oh, and then for Zverev, I'm sure I've said he will win. He will be a Grand Slam t champion. But I think FAA has the, has the potential to go through multiple generations of Grand Slam contendership, which is what you need to to amass um, a high number of Grand Slams. I mean, you got to contend not just for three years in your prime. You need to contend for 10, 12 years. And I think FAA can do that because I think he's just the total package. And Terry and Terry, Gil, um, who do you think has the highest, lowest level of all time? In my opinion, Nadal has that. I have never seen in my life any tennis player be as consistent and solid as Nadal, where the guy never makes horrible matches. So now I want to hear your opinion about this. Who is the highest, lowest level, according to you? I love this question. Thank you, and Terry and Terry. Um, this is a really interesting question. So... I almost feel like he's asking who is which player is least likely to play a really really bad match. I'm gonna. I know that he didn't say among the big three, but I'm gonna make this a big three question. I'm young. I didn't watch the entirety of Sampras or Agassi or Borg or Edberg or Connors or McEnroe. So I'm just gonna keep this to the big three. Um. And I agree with Terry and Terry. I think it's Nadal. 
because Federer can have a match where he litters up the stat sheet with errors. And I, I think that that was very, very rare early, early on in his career, maybe from like 2005 to 2000, I don't know, nine. But for the majority of his career, I would, I would say, he has had, um, you know, he, he has had the, the tendency when he's playing terribly, when he doesn't have his game, he's gifting his opponent points. And I think that's not true with Nadal. When Nadal is off his game, he plays with so much margin that it's not really that he's gifting his opponent points. It's more that he, he's losing his ability to sometimes to return serve as well as he needs to. When, a lot of the time when he's upset at Wimbledon, he's just not returning serve well enough. Or sometimes he's not a, he's lost his confidence on his forehand so he's not able to flatten it down the line like he's normally able to but the point is he's still getting balls in the court and he's still chasing down balls running down balls and uh that makes it hard to upset Rafa Nadal if you are a lower level opponent even if Nadal is off his game and a lot of the a lot of the times Rafa has been upset Let's say at Wimbledon, like like uh, Lucas by Lucas Rousseau or by Gilles Mueller, it's not that he's just missing a bunch of balls. It's that his opponent is actually hitting a ton of winners, hitting a ton of aces, and and actually taking the match from Rafa. When Federer has been upset, take the John Millman match for example. Take the Tommy Robredo U.S. Open 2013 match for example. His opponent's just getting the ball in the court. That's all they're doing. Now let's go to Djokovic. The reason Djokovic, I can't say, has the highest, lowest level ever is because there have been, he's too prone to, um, he's the most prone to physically kind of, or physically or mentally be way off, I would say. And I know that Rafa has had to retire on on hard courts in recently a lot of the time, but 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 that that's a real injury, and for Djokovic it's not necessarily injury, um, which is why like like I'd say in the match against Philip Kohlschreiber, like Djokovic just wasn't himself at all, and then you saw you know a whole year and a half go by where it's 2017 and then beginning beginning of 2018, the first half of 2018, where Djokovic mentally, the balance was completely off. He, he wasn't himself out there. And then, you know, again, physically there were issues too, but with, with the elbow, but mentally wasn't there. There are times where Djokovic just, he goes off the rails. It's rare. It's not common, but it happens a lot. Um, and again, Nadal, not common doesn't really, doesn't generally go off the rails. Mentally, I mean, he almost has it 99.9% .9 of matches. He has his fighting spirit and 100% focus and intensity. So there you have it. I agree. It is Rafa Nadal, the highest, lowest level ever. Muhammad Ali Zaidi. 
Tell us about the court speed in Miami. Do you think that the courts should slow down throughout the tour? In my opinion, there should be variety so that only the most versatile player can dominate the tour, not one-dimensional ones. Okay, so first I'll tell you about the court speed in Miami. I was very interested. Are they going to make changes? It, it sounds like the surface is the same. And I, I mean, some people jump to conclusions and I, a lot of the time they're wrong. Everything that I've looked at, um, it seems like they haven't changed the surface. And what that surface is, is it's a softer surface uh, than Indian Wells. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's lower bouncing. It's softer. It's not hev as heavily sanded as Indian Wells. So it, it's, a, it's a smoother surface, and that generally makes for a faster hard court. But Miami still plays slow. Um, a, a court surface expert that, that, I, that I've uh, spoken to um, says that w when it gets very hot, these courts get a little sticky, which slows things down a little bit. But the key with Miami is I don't think it's really a slow court. I think the conditions are what makes it slow. First of all, there's no altitude. Miami is below sea level, which means the air is very thick. The ball doesn't travel through the air as fast. That is massive. And then the humidity. The air is heavier. In, in humidity, the conditions play slower. So Miami plays very slow, but it's not as high bouncing as Indian Wells, which makes a big difference. I think um, flat hitting, more offensive hitting is more rewarded in Miami than it is at Indian Wells because at Miami, the ball bounces lower. Um, and then the second part of this is, do you think that courts should slow down throughout the tour? Um, not really. See, I don't know. Like people complain about the court speed across the, the tour and I need to hear it from you guys. What is the argument here? What are the problems? I'd like to see more tournaments on grass personally uh, because I just – I feel like why not? I, there's such an imbalance. There's so few grass court tournaments. I think it's uh, – you know, so I think that that's – there's a deficiency there. Other than that though, I don't see what all these complaints are. Um, in my opinion, there should be variety, but I agree. I think that there are, that, that there is variety though. Has there been homogenization compared to the nineties where Pete Sampras couldn't win a thing on clay and all he did was win on grass? Yeah, I think there has been some homogenization, but there's also been homogenization in, in playing styles. It, it's interesting, but I, I have to hear some compelling arguments because, because personally, I haven't really heard any arguments that there is a problem on tour with court, with court speeds. Stefano Desperati, I want you to destroy a widespread cliche. That is, the more uh, you are close to the baseline, the more you are aggressive. It is not true, all caps, exclamation point. The great Stan Wawrinka stays way back in the court, and he is one of the most aggressive and amazing players ever. Team does the same, and even Nadal can dictate from way back in the court. Uh... There are players like Chorich that are glued to the baseline, but they are not aggressive. They can't dictate because they aren't great shot makers. I don't fully agree that Chorich is glued to the baseline, but your point stands. It all depends on strength and on your legs. If you have great physicality and you are a great shot maker, you can be really aggressive from the fence. Right on, Stefano. Exactly. It all has to do with physicality and technique. Um, 
that can enable certain players to play far back and still dictate from back there. Um, however, I don't know of anyone who plays close to the baseline and doesn't play aggressive. I, because I mean that's that's almost like that's almost like a, a combination that doesn't really exist. But I think what what is true is that there are players who play far back, who like to play far back and are not aggressive, but there are also players who like to play far back and are aggressive and can be aggressive. So I think that's an important distinction. If there's a player who plays close to the baseline and is not aggressive, I don't think that exists. But I don't know. Because I don't think Chorich is necessarily a player that's glued to the baseline. Um, okay, time for a few more. Elwin Diggo, biggest drama queen ever. Yes, that's what uh, um, Andreescu said, or no, what Kerber said to Andreescu after losing to her second time in a row. Um, look, Kerber do isn't showing any class there, but heat of the moment, uh, no excuses for Kerber. What I will say is, why did the WTA take down take down the video? Whatever players say, players say on the court, and 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 that's how it is. Um, let me let me get some quick ones. Is Chilich on a permanent decline? I think so, probably. That's my opinion. Who is your top pick for dark horse to win in Miami? Shapovalov or FAA? Both of them. Um, train in Miami, so they're incredibly used to the humidity and and the courts. Um, this is this is where they they train in the off season. That's a huge advantage, especially the humidity. I'm from New York. I've played tournaments down in Florida. I can't breathe when I get there. The Floridians they can breathe. It's a huge advantage. Um, do you think Djokovic has already got his clay clay court shoes on mentally? He hasn't looked near the levels of Aussie Open, or is he just tired? I don't know. Neither. It was just one bad match against Cole Schreiber. Uh, no sweeping conclusions conclusions should be make um, should be made about Djokovic's level right now. Gil, how did Isner push Nadal to five sets at Roland Garros in 2011? I remember watching that match um, because. Because Rafa couldn't return his serve, and the margins were small, and Nadal wasn't clutch. Um, I don't know. That's interesting that, that you want to go back to that match. Yeah. 2011, French Open. That's right. Isner pushed Nadal to five sets. Crazy. Why do people, especially commentators, seem so blasé about Djokovic's outbursts and racket abuse? What's your view on his angry behavior? It's such a bad example and horrible to watch. Oh, boy. Um... My view is that is that Djokovic tries very hard not to have angry outbursts and not to abuse his racket. Um, I think that I I don't I don't really subscribe to the to the big bad example for kids thing. I mean, you know, once you get to that level, I mean, it's like. I just don't really have a problem with it. I, I don't know. It doesn't – I'm not – when I see someone um, – when I see someone smash their racket, I don't have this this terrible like how dare you reaction to it. If, if my – you know, I don't have kids, but if my kids smash their racket, you know, that would be a huge problem, right, obviously. I just don't think 
that kids are smashing their rackets because Djokovic is smashing their racket, his racket occasionally. I mean, I think that any any anyone with a bit of logic knows that Djokovic goes through you know six new sticks a match, and that no one else can really afford to do that. Okay, last one. I think Djokovic tries very hard, though. I think that's that's uh, important, and um, for some reason he's just uh, he he. He gets angry, and I think it's fine. It's human. Um, one more. Hey, Gil, MMA is mixed martial arts. Yes, it is. I love MMA, by the way, and it's very similar to tennis, and I know that's crazy. Hopefully, I can expand on that uh, opinion that I have sometime. Could you comment on Roger's chances on clay based on his performance on the slowest of hard courts, um, Miami and Indian Wells? Roger's chances on clay. Let's see how he's, how, how he's moving. It's all about because, you know, the movement changes a lot. So let's see how he moves. But, um, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. How is playing on clay courts different from slow hard courts in, in terms of skill, brute force, and endurance requirements? Hmm. The difference between clay and slow hard courts. Players who move well on clay defend better on clay. It is, they simply cover the court better. So I think that even if a clay court is just as slow as a hard court, clay courts still require um, more, more offensive output, more ability to set up a point in order to win a point because players defend better on clay, even if the speed of the court is the same. Sliding is a major advantage in defense for those who know how to take advantage of it because you don't need to take those those slow um, kind of choppy steps to slow down your momentum before you hit the shot. You can, you can slow down a lot less and kind of go into a slide. Players who are great on clay can defend so, so well on clay. Inconsistent bounce is, is perhaps another thing. When Federer takes the ball right off the rise, right on the hop, the inconsistent bounce that sometimes occurs on clay could affect him more than it affects him on hard. Um, those are the two points that I can make. All right. Hope you enjoyed, everyone. Great day of tennis at the Miami Open. Uh, so many great matches. I can't wait to watch them. Hope you enjoy as well. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.